KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Have you ever heard of the Lazaretto? It's in Tinicum Township, and if you haven't heard of it, you really should dig into some fascinating area history. And it is history that hits a bit differently given our current moment. Our conversation here is with Dr. David Barnes. He is an associate professor of history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania. This is really cool. Give a listen. So as someone who considers himself a student of history, I was absolutely fascinated when I heard about this and was amazed that I hadn't heard about it before. Kind of uh, start us off. What is the Philadelphia Lazaretto? Well, first of all, Matt, you're in good company in never having heard of the Lazaretto. For something as historically significant as the oldest surviving quarantine station in North America, it was essentially hiding in plain sight for decades. So let me go back to the beginning. In the 1790s, Philadelphia was hit by not one, but four devastating yellow fever epidemics. And in 1793, roughly 5,000 Philadelphians were killed in uh, a little over two months. And out of a total population of about 50,000, you know, imagine with the population of Philadelphia today, that kind of devastation, COVID-19 is, is bad enough, but this was really, really traumatic. And then yellow fever came back almost as bad in 1797 and again in 1798 and again in 1799. Philadelphia at the time was the nation's capital. It was the nation's largest city and it was the nation's busiest seaport. It was really the heart of the United States. And the most important city by far in the country. So the fact that the nation's most important city was reeling from these repeated epidemics caused some people to doubt whether Philadelphia could survive as a city and even whether big cities could survive in this part of the world at all. Thomas Jefferson wrote to a friend in Philadelphia that he felt, you know, he, he, he feared for his friend's safety. And he said, perhaps there some good will come of this in that Philadelphia, and I hope all big cities will be depopulated. Jefferson thought big cities were evil and sort of antithetical to the American virtues that he believed in. So it was clear Philadelphia had, at the time in the 1790s, a system of maritime quarantine by which arriving ships could be inspected and detained before entering the city. However, the the old quarantine system was very unevenly enforced and the old quarantine location, which was next to Fort Mifflin where the Schuylkill River meets the Delaware, that location was simply too close to the city and many in the city believed that because of the proximity of the old quarantine station, which was sometimes called the Lazaretto, because it was so close to the city, people could violate the quarantine laws and have interactions with the people and the ships who were undergoing quarantine. So as a result, in 1799, Philadelphia's Board of Health, which was established after the first yellow fever epidemic in 1793, purchased a 10-acre site on the Delaware farther away from the city in Tinicum Township. 
and built a huge new state-of-the-art quarantine station, which it called the Lazaretto. Lazaretto is an old Italian word that comes from the biblical figure Lazarus, and it was used to refer to a quarantine station or an isolation hospital. The Lazaretto was under construction from 1799 to 1801. It opened in 1801, and it functioned as a quarantine station until 1895, so pretty much the entire 19th century. And during the quarantine season, which was the warm weather months when yellow fever was a threat, every ship headed for the Port of Philadelphia had to stop and be inspected at the Lazaretto. And depending on the judgment of the Lazaretto physician, ships could be detained for anywhere from a few hours to, in extreme cases, a month or more. So if you end up at the Lazaretto, what could you expect if the, the physician says, you're not going anywhere for X amount of days? What kind of care could you expect? What, what was day-to-day life like? Uh, I mean, obviously, if you're sick, you're in bed. But if, uh, what was it like? Honestly, it was feast or famine at the Lazaretto. There were, you know, there were weeks and months at a time with almost no activity whatsoever. In other words, ships were arriving all the time, but there might be one or two ships undergoing quarantine, you know, cargo ships without many passengers, just a small crew, and uh, no patients sick in the, in the Lazaretto Hospital. And there were entire years with one or even no patients admitted into the Lazaretto Hospital. But then, so, so there, were, there were times when life at the Lazaretto was excruciatingly boring. And in fact, many people who spent time there who were healthy passengers, complained that their life was completely uneventful and they couldn't wait to get back to their normal lives. Sentiment that sounds familiar these days in 2020. However, when there were a large number of ships under quarantine or a large number of patients in the hospital, life could just be desperate. People were crowded together. If they couldn't stay on the ships because the ships had to be cleaned or disinfected or ventilated, they would sometimes be put up, the healthy passengers would be put up in tents in the open air on the, uh, the green space between the main building of the Lazaretto and the river. And so that, the Lazaretto green could be just covered with tents, hundreds and hundreds of passengers, healthy passengers being housed there. And food was sometimes short. The Lazaretto, you know, ships theoretically provided their own food for their passengers and crew, but sometimes after a long voyage, their food reserves were gone. And Lazaretto had to scramble to provide food for everybody. Every sick sailor or passenger arriving at the Lazaretto was admitted into the Lazaretto hospital and received medical care there. Now, we wouldn't recognize the treatments and the medicines that they were given at the Lazaretto to be state-of-the-art medical care today, we would consider it to be primitive at best. And yet, the patients at the Lazaretto Hospital did surprisingly well. About 90% of them survived, and they had some very serious, often fatal illnesses, including the two most common illnesses treated at the Lazaretto were yellow fever and typhus. Still to this day, There's no cure. There's no specific treatment for yellow fever. 
And certainly in the 19th century, there was no specific, widely effective treatment for typhus. But the patient survived. And I believe that they survived because they were given basic nursing care. They got food and drink. They got rest. They got clean clothes and clean bedding, a bed to sleep on, and basic nursing attention. Now, the nurses and the Lazaretto physician were sometimes, you know, dreadfully overworked, particularly when, you know, ships arrived with up to three or 400 passengers aboard crammed into the cargo holds of these, of these ships and many of them starving and sometimes 40 or more passengers from a single ship would have to be admitted at the same time to the Lazaretto Hospital, which could really, in ideal conditions, could accommodate something like 30 or 35 patients. Sometimes they had hundreds at a time. So in those cases, it would have been hectic, chaotic, and desperate. And in extreme circumstances, in one case in 1804, in situation like the one I just described, you know, many ships undergoing quarantine, lots of patients in the hospital, ships arriving day after day full of sick immigrants, starving immigrants, the healthy passengers who had been staying for weeks in quarantine, in packed in tents on the Lazaretto Green through intense heat, through rain, they got so fed up with the conditions that they actually rioted and caused several hundred dollars worth of damage at the Lazaretto, which in 1804 terms was a lot of money. But in a way, it's kind of surprising that there was only that one riot, given how many people spent time there and the conditions they were living in. And as I said, it's, it's remarkable that so many of the patients treated at the Lazaretto, even with terrible fatal diseases, did survive. So it's possible to look at the Lazaretto and think, well, I'm sure glad I didn't have to go through that, but people, people did okay. And at least in terms of preventing extremely severe yellow fever epidemics, the Lazaretto seems to have worked. Now, historians and epidemiologists don't fully understand why yellow fever stopped being such a, such a frequent visitor to the mid-Atlantic and northeastern ports of the U.S., it did continue to hit uh, certain southern ports, including New Orleans, up until about 1900. But I think the Lazaretto did at least play some part in the decline of yellow fever. So if you're on one of those ships, was it just if you were sick, period, you had to stay there? Or were they looking for the specific? You mentioned yellow fever and typhus. Um, and obviously now we know yellow fever was mosquito driven and not, mm-hmm. uh, not contagious, but was it, they would come across the captain or whoever would say, you know, one, seven and 11 have been coughing and everybody else is okay. In a way, that's how it worked. Each time a ship arrived, it had to, it had to stop and wait to be visited by the Lazaro physician and the quarantine master. They would be rowed out to the ships and these sort of cargo rowboats by the bargemen who worked at the Lazaretto. And then they would climb aboard and the quarantine master inspected the, the structure of the ship itself and the cargo hold, looking for 
unsound conditions in the ship itself or in the cargo, including rotting cargo. The captain was asked where the ship had come from, when it had left, what were the conditions at the port of departure when it left, had there been any significant illnesses in that city before the ship left, aboard the ship, were there any deaths, and were there any sailors or passengers who were currently sick? The captain was under strict legal, you know, under threat of fine or imprisonment if he lied or dissembled in response to those questions. And then the, um, the Lazaretto physician would, the captain would, uh, would uh, sort of muster the, the sailors and passengers, if any, aboard so that the Lazaretto physician could sort of visually inspect them and, you know, look for obvious signs of serious illness. So, as I said before, if anyone was sick at that time, they would be immediately landed and admitted into the Lazaretto Hospital. Healthy passengers could be detained uh, and often were detained for periods, again, of, of a day up to uh, a couple of weeks and sometimes even longer, up to, up to a month or two in extreme cases. And the thought was that if there were something on the ship, some sort of either, either an actual contagion of some sort or some kind of condition that might spread disease. If there, if there, you know, there was some kind of infection, the word infection in the 19th century meant a sort of contaminated condition of the air or, or soil or water. If that were in the cargo hold, say, or somehow in the ship, then it might take a while to actually cause illness in some people. So the healthy passengers would be observed for you know, sometimes a few days, sometimes longer. And then if there were no further illnesses among those passengers after a certain period of time, the Lazaretto physician would say, okay, I, the ship has been ventilated or disinfected, no more cases of illness, everybody's free to go. And the patients who were admitted into the hospital would, would be free to go as soon as they had recovered. Who paid for all this? Where'd the money come from to keep it running? Great question. Well, in theory, the ships paid for everything. The ship's owners paid for everything. Every ship, whether it was quarantined or not, every ship arriving at the Port of Philadelphia had to pay a health fee. Okay, Part of that fee went to pay the operating costs for the Lazaretto. Moreover, when a ship was detained, the crew and passengers had to be fed, as I said before. And if there were sick folks aboard, they had to be treated. The medicine costs money, and obviously the nurses and the bargemen had to be paid. And in addition to the health fee that every ship owner had to pay, the ship owners would be billed for the costs of feeding and treating the sailors or passengers from those ships. So in theory, the Lazaretto was self-sustaining. Uh, there were times when they couldn't balance the books and had to request more money from city council, or they wanted to upgrade their facilities and needed more money from city council. So they were often begging for more money, but the basic operating costs were paid by the ship owners. So you talk about the basically spans the whole 19th century. How does 
what they do in 1805, are they doing pretty much the same thing in 1890? It's just maybe fewer, or, or is it basically the same concept? The basic outlines of quarantine are the same in 1895 when the Lazaretto shut down as they were in 1801 when it opened. However, the world had changed dramatically, not surprisingly, in those years. And among other things, the germ theory of disease was becoming preeminent in the 1890s. So ideas about the causes and spread of disease had changed. There was much less worry about diseases like yellow fever and more concern about diseases that weren't limited to the warm weather months, like smallpox, diphtheria. And meanwhile, there was an increasing tide of immigrants, especially from Southern and Eastern Europe, arriving beginning in the 1880s and up through to the um, early 1920s. So there were, you know, in the 1810s and 20s, there were lots of immigrants arriving and Philadelphia from uh, the British Isles and Germany. And then in the 1840s, late 1840s, you have the Irish potato famine and a flood of starving migrants from Ireland all over the world, including uh, North America and, and Philadelphia. And you have more continuing flow of um, German-speaking immigrants. But the numbers and the countries of origin of immigrants beginning in the 1880s are very different. There's a uh, huge influx of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. And so there's a concern that this new immigration might overwhelm the services that American cities and states could provide. So it wasn't so much the quarantine to protect against epidemics that was at the top of mind in the 1890s. It was really what to do with the immigrants after they arrived. So that's when you see Ellis Island being built. Just as the Lazaretto is closing down, facilities like Ellis Island in New York City and Angel Island in San Francisco Bay are being built to handle and process the new flow of immigrants. And the way things have been done at the Lazaretto where it was really there was no concern that you know the immigrants wouldn't find a place and be able to survive in this new country but really it was all about preventing epidemics and that and that way of looking at things seemed uh, old fashioned and no longer you know an urgent threat by 1895 so what happens to the buildings in subsequent years decades and century in 1898 the Athletic Club of Philadelphia, whose members included some of the you know, richest and most powerful men in Philadelphia, leased the Lazaretto as their summer home, as a country club, essentially. They called it the Orchard, and they had fancy parties there, dinners. They played lawn tennis there. They played lawn bowling. They played baseball there. They had bicycle outings there, hunting and fishing outings. It was a sort of riverside country club uh, where people could escape the heat and crowding of the city and relax and enjoy themselves along the riverfront. In 1915, a couple of the wealthy young men who were members of the athletic club 
took an interest in aviation. Aviation was something of a new fad for rich people with lots of free time on their hands. So these young members of the Athletic Club of Philadelphia bought a couple of flying boats. Flying boats were the names at, at the time that were given to what we call seaplanes. And they flew them over from San Diego and started flying them along the Delaware River from the Lazaretto. They actually started giving flying lessons to people like themselves, and they bought more seaplanes. And in uh, 1917, when the U.S. was getting ready to enter World War I, the Army took over the Lazaretto as a place to train military pilots. And that didn't last very long, and by the following year, the war was over. But the seaplane base and flying school continued operation after World War I all the way through until the year 2000. And it was operated by the Mills family, Frank Mills, and, his, and then eventually his, his kids took over after he retired. And they operated the seaplane base, the flight school, and a marina out of the Lazaretto. And because of these afterlives, the... The Orchard Country Club and the Seaplane Base, the basic, the main building of the Lazaretto and a few of the uh, outbuildings survived and survived till this day. Whereas every other facility like the Lazaretto eventually closed down and was demolished or, you know, dismantled. There's nothing like the Lazaretto that still survives to this day, at least not in, not in this country. So it really is, it's a, it's a relic of a bygone age. It seems incredibly timely today in 2020, even though, you know, our epidemic is different from yellow fever. And even though our version of quarantine is not the same as what people went through at the Lazaretto, it's just kind of amazing that this place is still around. And in a kind of historical irony, a group of folks with whom I'm involved, have been working for years to preserve and restore the Lazaretto as a historic site so that people can visit and learn about this history. And it's really a, it's an, it's an amazing place. It's, it's weirdly beautiful. It's grand and stately. It's in a very striking setting along, uh, along the riverfront. And so the township of Tinicum raised money to restore the main building of the Lazaretto and to move its administrative offices there, the township offices, to the main building of the Lazaretto. If the restoration took forever, it was, the construction was plagued by delays. Finally, finally, the restored, beautiful, shiny, fabulous, restored main building of the Lazaretto opened to the public on February 28th of this year. And then two weeks later, two weeks later, after all that work had to shut down again because of quarantine. So the irony was not lost on anybody. Um, I hope that, that people can visit the site today. In fact, at our, if I can plug uh, uh, our website, it's lazaretto.site.site. And um, people can visit the site and take a self-guided audio tour, which is the, the audio is available on the website. If you have a 
smartphone. You can just uh, walk around the grounds and listen to the audio tour. It takes about 40 minutes and it's a beautiful place to visit. And we can't go inside the main building now because of uh, the pandemic, but eventually, knock on wood, it'll be over and folks can not only visit the site, but see inside the main building. And something I, I failed to ask earlier, just give us some context. How big is the Lazaretto? Yeah, well, the um, the original site was uh, 10 acres. When the township purchased the property, it built a new fire station and a banquet hall on the unbuilt half of the property. So the side of the property away from the river is now has a you know parking lot and fire station and banquet hall. The remaining five acres is really much the way it was in 1801 when the Lazaretto opened. And it's dominated by the main building, which is, um, which is huge and, and grand and stately. As I said before, it's three and a half stories high. It's about 15 or 16,000 square feet. It's obvious to anybody who goes there that this place was a big deal. And really it was one of, probably one of the largest structures in the whole country when it was built. And the outbuildings that survive are much smaller. But with the, the combination of the architectural style of the main building and its size and its position relative to the river, the river is kind of bucolic oasis right next door to the airport, you know, which is loud and busy. And there are industrial sites in the other direction downriver. There's an island, Little Tinicum Island, in the middle of the river, immediately opposite the Lazaretto, which is completely wild. So you have this strange sense of a um, this this huge building sort of plopped down from outer space on this strangely bucolic stretch of riverfront, and it's a really it's a it's an uncanny sensation to be there, but uh, really a great place to walk around and spend some time. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.